This morning is September 28th, 2014. If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, as we open. John, chapter 1, verse 29. says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was born before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might. That he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the son of God who the scripture called Emmanuel God with us. We're singing about awareness this morning. Awareness that the glory of God fills the earth and we need to tune in to it. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, come. And you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had to say, had said, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. But you will be called Cephas when translated means Peter. What is the call? God called. Jesus came. He found Peter and he called Peter by a new name. And so he has for us in my house. Everyone in my house carries the same last name as me. And that says something about my family household. It says something individually about each person in that house. We carry one name, one identity, yet we're unique in each of our personalities. So it is for the body of Christ. That each one of us are individual in our personalities but one in carrying the name of God. We carry the Hashem, the name. And since we do that, that makes us ambassadors or representatives to the nations, to our atmosphere, to our families, whoever we find ourselves in around that day. We carry his name. But what happens in my household is that I am raising up young men who may now be boys but one day we'll be released from under my home 
under my authority and released to go on about their own way. When they do so, if I've done a good job, they'll carry some of the same characteristics, but they'll be different in in their personalities. They'll carry some of the same attributes, but there'll be some differences. I'm raising a daughter. She has the same last name as me. She carries my name. Until she's wed to another, she'll carry that name. What does that say about us who carry his name? This morning, I want to talk to you about a call. When Jesus called out to Peter, he called him by a new name. No matter what we go through, no matter the trials we may endure, we got to realize that along the way, we are carrying his name. It is a call. He has called you a son and a daughter of the living God. And along that journey, you're going to have to grab hold and remember that. Because sometimes it's going to get hard. And sometimes it's going to be joyful. We're singing about joy this morning. You know why? Because we have to learn to sing a song of joy through anything we go through. People are watching your life. Somebody's blood is on your hands. And what do I mean by that? Somebody's watching your life. They're watching you get it right. And they're watching you get it wrong. And they're learning the nature of God through your life. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 12. And this will be our text this morning. 1224. If Jesus came to you and called you by a new name, that would that would automatically provoke your thoughts. Why did he deem me with a new name? Why did he call out to me, but immediately give me a new name? And if he gave you that new name, do I feel like he called me Peter? I've been called something else all my life. But as I'm walking with him and getting to know him, I get I get to understand why he called me by that new name. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because a name in my house when I'm developing sons by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am cultivating something. I am helping to impart something to these guys that they'll grow up in order to nourish somebody else once they leave my house. The point, God, through whatever you go through, has called you to live out that new name. That's the call, to live out that new name. And so when you find yourself in a hard spot or you find yourself overly blessed and don't know what to do with it, and because of it, you seem to be backsliding, there's all kind of ways that this happens. You realize that you're living out the name step by step by step. And if he rebukes you like he did Peter, it's only because he loves you. It's only because he said, he's saying, Satan, get behind me. What is he doing? He's reminding Peter. I called you by a new name. Now live up to it. I called you by a new name. Now live it out. Quit living like this, Peter. Just carrying the name ought to remind you of something. It would be better for us if each day we would walk with, with, if I called myself Bob. Right? If I was, uh, I know my name is Michael, but I'm going to call myself Bob today because it's a reminder every single 
time that Jesus called me by a new name and just carrying that name should remind me that I should live out my life different than I think. Jesus in John 12, 24, our text today says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Let me make sure that you understand cultivation. There's many in here who can teach me the art of cultivation in every single aspect. So I'll do my best. Cultivation, tillage, the word tillage is an art of cultivation. It is breaking up the soil, preparing the soil in order to receive a seed. Horticultural. This is a form of cultivation. This is the cultivating of plants. Once the seed's in the ground, you nurture it as it grows. Here's one. Threshing. Threshing is an art of cultivation. Threshing is once the seed's in the ground and once it's properly grown up, it is now uprooted, taken to a place and separated so that the fruit can be taken out of the plant, the nourishing part, in order to feed somebody else. This is what threshing is and it's an art of cultivation. Animal husbandry. This is a neat one. I didn't know they called that that. But it's a pretty cool word. But it's the art of cultivating livestock. When we come together as a church, when we come to give a sacrifice of praise, when we strike up a guitar, we open the word, we come together with an intention to pour out for others, we are cultivating an atmosphere. We are cultivating the atmosphere for supernatural growth. We're cultivating the atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to come in and minister to us as we worship him. It's a cycle of the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus washed the, Peter's feet, he, and Peter said, no, you don't do this, Lord. You don't wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash all of you, you have no part with me. It's a codependent relationship. Jesus desired that. So we would never lose the intimacy of. What is the recipe in here? Clean hands and a pure heart. That's the recipe in here to cultivate an atmosphere of praise so that the Holy Spirit can do what he wants. A contrite heart, redeemed and unredeemed. These are our recipes for this atmosphere of cultivating a place where God desires to move. In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, it says, For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Do you see the part where it said, wonderful counselor? Pastor Matt and I were talking about this the other day. What a shame if we ever get to a point in our walk where he stops being wonderful. Where he stops, where his wonder ceases. If his wonder ever ceases for you, then you should probably find yourself looking for what area you're trying to control. There's some area in your life that you grab hold to and stiffed arm the presence of God. Me and my family now are in a wonderful season of not knowing. There's many things that we didn't know. And we're encouraged by it. It actually brings new life. <laughs> because you know why? The limits just fell off. Like Pastor Eric said before he left, what box? Do we often paint God in our own image? I would say we do. I'd say we do in the in our process of thinking, in the way we think God's going to do this thing next. <laughs> Today, I want to give you a very clear message. I don't want to... Well, let me say this. Friday night, I had the privilege of sharing in a home meeting, and I was able to share revelation. And I understand when you give revelation, not everybody gets it. But today I want to share for, with you experience, what I've seen and what I know, so that I can be on display for you and be transparent for what God's done in me. So all I can do for you is explain to you what I've experienced with God. And that's going to connect for some of you and not for others. I understand that. But this is all I can give. All you can ever give is the experience that you have with God. If you want to give more for other people, go get more experience. <laughs> I want to explain three things to you today. The call, the cost, and the commission. Today's message is cultivating a call. I didn't say the call because there is a call in general over all God's children. But individually... There is a individual call in each person that is to be cultivated. You see, I thought at one point it was just simply something that I answered in one initial uh, act of obedience. But I've learned along the way it is a repetitive action. If you would turn with me to Romans eleven twenty nine. This is a simple one-liner. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Okay, that stumbled me up for a while. 
especially when I thought I answered the call. This is what I said. I answered the call. Therefore, it cannot be taken away. Nobody will steal it. Uh, it, God has to make it happen, right? But boy, I've learned some things along the way. God's call, that the word that comes forth from his mouth, is irrevocable. But this is a codependent relationship. You see, you depend upon God to speak out to you individually, but he, de- he expects you to respond every single time. The call. The call demands a response. No doubt about it. Every time and for the rest of your life and for the rest of your walk, it's going to demand a response. Romans 11.29, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Numbers 23.19 says something that Pastor Matt said during worship. And it's very vital to us. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak, then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? When it comes to God's side of the responsibility to speak and call Upon the things in your life, he's done so, and it hadn't changed. He knew you while you were in your mother's womb. He called out a plan for you in this life, and he's asking you to respond to it. Now, when you respond to that, you don't know what's coming next. You don't know what's on that path of that call. But you are expected to say yes before you know what it is. The answer is always yes before you know the question. This is what God loves and desires because he knows every time you come up to that point, you're not going to know that that is what's required of the new name. He's always foretelling the word into your life. He's telling you what you are not yet, but will be. And you have to walk in this. What it is to walk, it's not the just won't live by understanding. They live by faith. In Matthew twenty-two seventeen, 17. In Matthew twenty two seventeen, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I always thought this was a money scripture. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought it. They brought him a denarius and he asked them. Whose portrait's on this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God's what is God's. You see, they would have knew. They would have understand Genesis very well. We were created in his image and in his likeness. 
And if we were created in his image, then we owe God our life. If this coin bared the image of Caesar, then it belonged to Caesar. But if this life bared the image of God, it belongs to God. You know what this does? It crushes the self-centered gospel of today. This is why we can easily call it a heresy. It is not God-centered. It has to be God-centered. Or it's not God. When we look at, do you realize that Jesus created a revolution when he said the word father? When he said the word father, he created a revolution because he was saying, I am the intimate connection between the father and you. He's my father. And so when we're walking among religions today and we say the word father, it sets us apart from the rest. When I mean a codependent relationship with Jesus, our codependency is that we are going to do this together in order to give God the glory. Never will I do it without him and Never do I have to do it without him and never will he do it without me. It sets us apart. We have been given the command to accept the call. You know what the call is? It's an invitation to come. It's an invitation to come and drink of me. Come and learn from me. Come And let me be the spirit in you that cannot do what you do. That can be what you cannot be. In Isaiah 55. (laughs) As we're singing about awareness of his presence. God wants to let you know that he is here. He does that specifically for me. He has done that time after time and time again. I used to go to the prisons in Louisiana by myself at night, an hour long drive, not knowing whether my word that I was going to give that night was from the Lord or not. Don't know. No brothers around me, nothing. And when I would get there in worship without any instruments or anything, the presence of God would be just as thick in there as it was in here. And somebody would give a word or a scripture was exactly what I was preaching on. And that was that was what I needed. That was the encouragement that I needed to know that God was with me. And it fired me up and I was able to deliver what I what I was given, walk away and know that he simply was there. And that was good enough for me. Had nothing to do with performance or giving a word or anything. I simply knew he was there with me and that was good enough because that's the only place I wanted to be was where he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 55.1, needless to say, was a scripture that was really on my heart today and was spoken in prophecy already. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. 
And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? I love that. You see, answering the call didn't cost you anything but your response. Now that you've come, listen, listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the riches of fair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promise to David. See, I have made him a witness to peoples. A leader and commander of peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Now that you've come and you're listening, I'm going to tell you to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it may yield seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word. What is the context of the scripture? What's his point in this very passage? He is talking about his word. The nature of a spoken word from his mouth that has landed in you. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. I will not, it will not return to me empty. It is irrevocable. And achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And the later scriptures go on to tell. Why did I send it? For the liberation of the creation. For joy unspeakable and full of glory. His purpose in you is always life. His purpose in you is always life. When we're in, we're, we're in the seasons that crush us. We need to remember to sing his song because his purpose for you, even in that season, is life. I I told you once there was one time that I thought that initial response to the call was the answering of the call. But the initial response is only the beginning. The initial response of answering the call is only a start. That's a coming to. Come, you're invited to come to the call. But then what? We're looking at, wrote these numbers down because I often don't remember these things. 11 years ago, 11 years ago, after being born again for five years, it took me five years to go from answering 
an initial salvation call. For five years, I had to work out my salvation in fear and trembling and and still doing so. But for the first five years, I had to come. I had to get along with God and wrestle with him to understand what was happening to me, to take on a new name and to know what it was to walk in that. Remember, I'm telling you, I'm going to share experience with you today. I finally found myself after five years in the right spot to rightly hear from God, to rightly hear about the call that we're talking about today. This generation is such an instant gratification generation that we expect things to come together like that, that we expect God to speak when we get on our knees every single time. You realize that you have to travail in prayer sometimes, that you have to beat down the heavens in order for God to give you an answer. And the reason is he's trying to create something in you. He's trying to make something out of you. He wants you to carry that new name. You cannot carry the promise without the right character. God's going to give you character before he gives you the promise. You have to have it. You know why? Because he's fighting for you. He's protecting you. He is building you up and giving you broad shoulders because he knows that a couple years down the line, weeks or months down the line, that there's coming a time where you're supposed to pick up that promise and carry it. But he knows that your shoulders are not broad enough. And he wants to make them broad enough in order for you to carry them. Five years. Five years after answering a prayer on my front porch, saying, you are God, I am not him. And if you are, I need to figure out who you are and what pleases you. I'm going to, with every energy and every tenacity in me, I'm going to turn my attention to that. And I did. And it took me five years to get a grip. It took me five years in order just to be able to hear a word when I read it. To see in between the lines, to see what God was trying to speak to me. And after five years, we walked into a little storefront church. And as soon as I walked in the place. As soon as I did, God downloaded understanding and he showed me a man on. He showed me a man and he was playing a guitar. And and the Lord spoke to me and said, you're going to do what that man does. And I went can't sing. Hey. Okay, Lord, because it was vivid. There was nobody going to change my mind because it was from God. If somebody can change your mind, you should be questioning whether it's from God. Maybe you should ask for the testing to come. I spent six years in that place. Precious, precious years. Wouldn't trade any of them. I spent six years with a word from God that said, you're to do this. A zeal like no other around me. And you know what it did? Because my zeal was greater than my understanding. And my tenacity to actually do what God had shown me. I didn't realize that that call, that initial call had to be cultivated, that it had to grow up. That he had to put things in me, that he had to broaden my shoulders in order to carry things that he had shown me. 
that was to come. It created a fire shut up in my bones. You know why? Because on every avenue, I was stopped. On every avenue, every time I'd want to, uh, Lord gave me a word. Well, he gave me six words. He gave me understanding in the word. I guess I'm supposed to go tell it. He told me so. I'm going to do it. You know, he might speak something to you that might be for 10 years from now. This is what he done in me. But you know what it did? It, it cultivated a character of God in me. He showed me what it was to be meek. He showed me what it was. You know, meek, somebody explained meekness to me. They were like, yeah, it's like a pack of wild wolves held back, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's what meekness is, is you might have the ability to do this, 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 and this. But let me tell you something. Every time a man got on a cross, he lost his rights. And so will you when you get on the cross. Just because you can do doesn't mean God's requiring you to. There's a cost. For every call, God demands a response. But for every cost, he demands a resurrection. He's going to bring you to a place where you got to die so that he can live in you. You remember we died 2,000 years ago. Therefore, Christ lives in us. So spent six years cultivating a, a call, an initial call, in order that God could show me what he wanted to do in me. You know what happened? I fell so in love with that place that I thought it was actually there. I fell in so in love with that place that at some point I convinced myself that God had not only called me to do what he had shown me, but I was to do it there. It's a heart-wrenching experience when the truth comes. It's a heart-wrenching experience when you the truth comes and you don't know it. You thought it was rejection, but it wasn't rejection. It was your lack of clarity and thinking that God owes you clarity. God never promised us clarity. He only promised us trust. But it's also liberating because the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. You see, we lived in many years of an expectation that something was supposed to happen right where we were standing, left with the, with feelings of rejection. But when the truth came many years later, we now were liberated and understand, wait a minute, we can drop the rejection that was not due as a burden we wasn't supposed to carry. You see, Jesus was the burden bearer, right? He was to carry our burdens. See, we were carrying something we were not meant to carry. Our shoulders wasn't built for it. But now, when the truth came, it's liberated us. And now we understand we're actually happy not to know. <laughs> First John actually became 
my favorite book in those years. You know why? Because I could go back to it and back to it and back to it. It was like a, a manual to make sure that what was in me was the real thing. Every time you get suppressed or feel suppressed, every time you get shut down, or every time you think you're supposed to do this or be able to do this and you can't do it, you ask yourself, What's, what was me? What's wrong with me? And that's not the truth. John says, quit, quit comparing yourself to others and compare yourself to Jesus. You compare yourself to Jesus, you'll find out if you got the real thing. And the whole book of John is about knowing whether you got the counterfeit or you got the real thing. <laughs> you know what I, I needed to know? I needed to know that Jesus was worth it. And you say, what do you mean? You remember when John, John was in prison, he's about to lose his head, and he's calling out, are you the Messiah? You already told your followers he was the Messiah. Now you're about to lose your head, you're questioning it? He's calling out, and what does Jesus say? Jesus comes back and tells him, the, the deaf ears are open, the blind eyes see, the dead are raised. Of course, I'm the Messiah. And John says, take it all. Take my head. You see, there comes a point, a testing time, a cost where you need to know for yourself that that specific call is yours and no one can take it away. And you know what brothers and sisters in the Lord should do? They should become iron that sharpens iron. They should question it sometimes. Because if they can take it away from you, it's not yours. They need to call you on it. They need to test you and say, are you sure, brother? Are you sure this is from God? And you need to be able to stand that test. Or you need to question whether it's from God or not. You know why I needed to know? I needed to know that that, that very word was from that call was from God because the call was turning into a cost. I realized real quick that the initial call was now turning into a cost and it was going to cost me something. You see, the reason I read John 12 in the beginning is because this is our core scripture for today, because unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, you're, at some points, there's going to come a call where your vision has to die so that God can birth that vision in you. How many times now have I got a grip and an understanding that this is God's direction? That's the target, and this is my goal, and this is the vision. That's just in my personality and my very nature. This is the vision, and I'm going after it with everything I got, and God requires it to die. He requires it to die. Why? Because he's in the resurrection business. He's in the resurrection business and there is no life without a sacrifice. I needed to know that. After 11 years of sold out obedience to Jesus, he's required me to do what I did at first. Do y'all remember the experience of coming to Jesus for the first time? He require you to die. He, re he required your vision to die. 
You thought this is what life was. You thought this is how it's going. I got an understanding. I got a 10-year plan. I got a five-year plan. I got a three-year plan. Bam. And then the real Big Bang Theory came. He required you to do what you did at first. And nothing's going to change. You see, you growing in the Lord in each step of the way is not going to nullify the word before. The word is true and it will remain true until the end of your days and even into eternity. After 11 years, I show up here. After 11 years, I show up here and some of the first things that I hear and are embedded into me is that I need my brother and my brother needs me. And it's now part of my DNA. And the other thing is that I have to die for my brother's vision. And that's part of my DNA. But it did. It wasn't that when I showed up. It wasn't that until I showed up. You know why? Because God demanded a resurrection. It was part of the resurrected body, the resurrected vision that I would have. But my old one had to die. In Friday's, last Friday night's meeting, we talked about how the willing and obedient would eat the fruit of the land. There has to come a point where you're more than just obedient. You have to be willing. And some of you are in a spot where you feel beat down or repetitive sufferings, repetitive hard seasons like this has always happened to me time and time and time again. But the Lord wants you willing before he sends you on. So you can be obedient. Praise God. Obedience is the minimum in the kingdom. You have to be obedient. Obedience is the minimum and willingness is the maximum. Are you following me? I usually like to preach, but today I want to share. Isaiah 119 is where it says, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the land. You need to go home and meditate on that. You know what it is to meditate on the word instead of just read it? It means read the one line and don't get off your knees or in your prayer closet until you get it. I love this Leonard Ravenhill quote. He said, the Christian has every right to tell God he wants to be a saint. He has no right to tell him how to make him one. Every cost demands a resurrection. There's a quote flying around by Hillel. It says, my humiliation is my exaltation and my exaltation, my humiliation. You see, John knew. He knew that he had to become lesser so that Jesus could become more. That is a principle, a spiritual law in the kingdom. Why does it flee us as we walk on in our callings? Why do we think because we're growing in the Lord that now we have to stop becoming less? 
You understand if you're growing in the Lord and you think you don't have to become less, you're walking in the wrong way. You repent and turn around. You realize what it is to die for your brother's vision? Every time you die for one of your brother's visions, it's an actual promotion in the heavens. Talents. Some of us have callings and we say, God, you've called me to be a worship leader. You've called me to sing. You've called me to do all these other things. But does he need that? So you can. It's not about what you can do. It's, a, it's always about being available for what he needs at the moment. Go back to John 12, 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Seeds are potentials. They are not the fruit. Got that? The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. After six years of answering that invitation, very clearly, we had more to do, more work to do. There was no life without sacrifice. If there's a call, there's a cost. You got to ask yourself, what is the cost and are you willing I'll share a few pictures with you today. When there's a call, there's a cost. The call and the cost are actually, the call is to a threshing floor, what the Bible calls a threshing floor. If you look at this picture, the Bible shows us a threshing floor. What you see is wheat upon a ground, a hard surface. You see a man with a horse, and in Israel's time, it would have been oxen that were two oxen with yokes around their necks, what's called a bond servant behind them, and he's standing on a board. He's standing on a board that actually has underneath it spikes and is driven into the ground. And what he's doing here is threshing the wheat. But you know what he's not doing? He's not threshing the seeds. He's threshing the fruit. Why is that relevant? Because we are the fruit. We're no longer seeds. We're no longer seeds. We are seeds that have been planted in good soil. We are seeds that's been nourished and grown up. And now God calls you to a place where he has to sift out the things that are not good for others' consumption. You get me? Right? There comes a time of separation. So what you see, all the golden part, that's a whole lot of chaff going on. Right? (laughs) There's a whole lot of chaff. And then you got this other guy over here on the end, uh, and he's got his, uh, his, uh, what you call it, pitchfork. Right? 
And what he does while it's in a, in a pile, uh, he scoops it up, throws it into the air. The chaff goes down and gets burned out by the fire and the fruit falls to the ground. Right? He's sifting the wheat. Show the other picture. This is what the man's standing on. He's standing on a piece of wood and what's laying on the ground is, is the uh, yoke that goes around the oxen's necks. And show the other picture. And what's on the bottom of it is spikes. What's funny on a threshing floor is what you find is the same elements that you found on the cross. You found spikes driven into wood. You found the wood. You found the oxen, the burden bearers. You found the wheat. You found everything that was present at the crucifixion of Christ because he was the burden bearer. He was the one that was nailed to the wood in order to thresh you so that he could get the fruit out of you in order to consume others. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 21. As Pastor Matt and I were talking the other day, we were talking about this subject. And one thing... Pastor Matt said to me, stuck in me, will never leave. He said, the thing that you carry to the call is not necessarily the thing that will carry you through the call. The thing that you carry to the call was not meant to carry you through the call. You understand the things, maybe the talents or whatever it is for you. Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's not a talent at all. Maybe it's just an opportunity that carried you to this place. So you answered the initial call, but it's brought you to the cost. And you see many people bounce out at this time. Many people turn and walk away when they realize that initial call brings them to a cost, brings them to a threshing floor. Because they don't want, they don't want to go through the process of sifting out the chaff from the wheat. But it has to happen. You see, you no longer belong to yourself and you don't realize it. But that vision has to die so that the resurrection, the vision of the resurrection can happen through your life. The thing that carried you to the call cannot carry you through the call. First Chronicles 21. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and to the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many are there. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply your troops a hundred times over my Lord, the king. Are they not all the Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should we bring guilt on Israel? That no time in your walk is God pleased that you take a census of your strength. At no time in your walk will God ever be pleased that you go and see what you got left before you got to go to battle. That you go and say, okay, Lord, you got a battle that's put before me. Let me go figure out what's left in the tank. Let me go figure out what I got left and whether I can do this or not. Because see, it says 
I got to go do this. And you miss the point. God put that in front of you in order to show you who he is in you. God will never be pleased. And watch this. The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the numbers of the fighting men to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. He had no reason to go and count men. You could have half of that and take on the world. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. And this happens after David finally repents and says, I've done something wrong. I am giving you three options. Choose one from them for me to carry out against you. What was happening? David was asking, Lord, what, what can I do out of, to get out of my bad decision? What can I do to get out of my bad decision? He gives him three bad options. Got that? Three bad options. He sinned against the Lord and he's, he's hoping that the Lord will give him a good option. There's never a, a good option. There's only a way out. That's grace. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, or is a prophet, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me and carry it out against, uh, to carry out against you. <laughs> so Gad went to David and said to them, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you or three days of the sword of the Lord. Days of plague in the land with the angels of the Lord ravaging each part of Israel. Now then decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am deep in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But at the, as the angel was, going, was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna. What happened? We talked about a cost. Many men have done this before us, including our Bible examples. Some men asked John G. Lake, how was it that, how was it that you so greatly affected the nation of Africa? You see, everybody puts John G. Lake on a pedestal and thinks it was one great man with one great message or one great faith that went and affected a whole nation. You see, men like this never, it was never uh, intended or dependent upon their one relationship with God. John G. Lake made a good statement. He said, we have lost the character of consecration in our generation. He said, do you want to know how? Do you want to know why God poured his spirit out in South Africa like he did nowhere else in the world? There was one reason. 
he had 125 men out on the field at one time. We were a very young institution. South Africa is 7,000 miles from any European country. It is 10,000 miles away from England to the United States. Our finances got low under the awful assault we were compelled to endure. <laughs> that there came a time I could not even mail to the workers at the end of the month, $10 bill, a $10 bill of one family. It got so that I could not even send a $2 or $2 to a family. The situation was desperate. What was I to do? Under this circumstance, I did not want to take the responsibility of leaving men and their families on the frontier without real knowledge of what the conditions were. Some of us at headquarters sold our clothes in some cases, sold certain pieces of furniture of our house, sold anything we could to bring those 125 workers off the field to a conference. One night in the progress of the conference, I was invited by the committee to leave the room for a few minutes. The conference wanted to have a word by themselves, so I stepped out to a restaurant for a cup of coffee. When I came back, I found they had rearranged the chairs in an oval with a little table at one end, and on the table was the bread, of wine, a bread and wine. Old Father Van Vanderwall, speaking for the company, said, Brother Lake, during your absence, we have come to a conclusion. We have made our decision. We want, to serve, we want you to serve the Lord's Supper. We're all going back on the fields. We are going back if we have to walk back. We are going back if we have to starve. We are going back if our wives die. We are going back if our children die. We are going back if we ourselves die. We have but one request. If we die, we want you to come and bury us. The next year, Lake says, I buried 12 men and 16 wives and children. In my judgment, not one of the 12, if they had the few things they needed to eat. That was the cost of revival in a nation, in the African nation. Today we're talking about first world consecration. You see the difference? How much more so can we give? How much more so should we understand that every single believer must come to the threshing floor? David looked up and saw of the Lord standing between, saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth above Aruna's threshing floor. With a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem, then David and the elders clothed themselves in sackcloth, fell on their face. David said to God, was it not enough? Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let the plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David, to go up to build an altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna. So David went up in obedience to the word of word that Gad, the word of prophecy, had spoken in the name of Lord. 
While Runa was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Aruna looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, Let me have this site of the threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people might stop and sell it to me for full price. Aruna said to David, Take it. Let my Lord the king do what he pleases with him. Look, I will even give you oxen, burnt offerings, and the threshing sledge for the wood, and the wheat and the grain offering. I will give it all to you. But the king applied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying the full price. Hmm. I will not take for the Lord what is yours and sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. I will not take a life. I will not take a new name. I will not take a new life that costs me nothing. I will not take on resurrection power. Walk out this life and have it cost me nothing. You understand what that is? You see, if there's a call, there's a cost. But the cost is to bring you to a resurrection. Because there is a commission. The last four years have been a threshing floor for me and my family. And guess what? We would not trade it for anything in the world. You know why? Because we have been more productive for the kingdom than ever. We have produced more for the kingdom than ever. We have come to a, a point of resurrection that we're more good for others than we are our own self. We are no earthly good, but we are good for the heavens. You see, you got to get to that point. You got to get to the point where you're no earthly good. We're still working on that, but that's our target and our direction. You see, that's our new nature. We naturally are willing and want to do that. It wasn't that four years ago. Four years ago, we had an understanding that it was about to cost us something, but we didn't realize the cost. Now that we've been put on the threshing floor, we understand that that wheat grew up and that chaff that was around it, it actually nourished it for a while. It was actually a good thing. God sent it. God grew it. But, there came a point where he said, no, now you have to be separated from that. That's no longer required of this walk. You cannot go any further unless this is eliminated, burned up in the fire. Because what I want from you is that fruit. I want from you only what nourishes others. Only what is consumable by others. If there's chaff left on it, they're going to choke. Hear my heart's desire. My heart is now reconditioned for souls. My heart has been transplanted. And now all I care about is the person who is about to fall into the flames of hell. 
My heart is that if I have to die, others will be lifted up, will be lifted out of the ditch. If I have to die, if my visions have to die, I will prop up others to do what I think I can do. So I can do that. It doesn't matter. He didn't ask me to. So so this is my vision. Okay, it's yours, but is it God's? Maybe he wants you to die so that others may live. Are we getting that? Because I'm driving it home. I'm really trying to drive it home. We have fruit to offer. But there was and is things that are not good for consumption. We have to continue to work on that. We have been invited to a threshing floor. And it's a good place. You know why? Because you're carrying his name right through it. And on the other side, he is the perfect consumable fruit, right? And so he requires you to be as well. In Isaiah, remember what we read? And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. If you stay one with him in the commission, which really is a co-mission, then he brings you through in order that you'll be perfectly consumable for somebody else. Turn with me to Matthew 13, 44. Thirteen forty four, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went away and sold how much? All he had to buy that field. This is what God's after. He's after the call in you. He's after that call. And he paid it all. Why shouldn't we? He paid it all. Why shouldn't we? Ecclesiastes says in chapter three, it says that he has made everything beautiful in his time. And the same thing he's doing with us. I'm going to close with chapter 22. Of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, verse one. Jesus spoke to them again, back up to uh, 2145. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable. They knew he was doing what? (laughs) Talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Jesus spoke to them again in the parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. Then he sent more, then he sent some more servants and said, "Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared that I have 
prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners invite and, and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. <laughs> then the king told the attendant, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. What's the difference? It's those who get invited to the threshing floor. But what happened with this guy in the parable? He, had, he wasn't naked and unashamed. He simply had the wrong clothes on. You see, he didn't put on the new, he didn't put on the new nature. He didn't put on the new uh, righteous acts of the saints. He didn't put on what he needed to go and be released into the commission. If there's a call, there's a cost. And if there's a cost, it's for the commission. You see the funny thing about Aruna's threshing floor? Well, it wasn't just a threshing floor. When David wanted the, the penalty for his wrong to stop on the people, the consequence of his bad decision to stop, God gave him a way out. God said, go and take an altar of sacrifice and build it on the threshing floor. It's where the altar and the sacrifice, the sacrifice and the threshing floor come together. It's where the willing and the obedience, where that desire comes together, that God provides a way. You know what happened years before that, many years before that? This was on Moriah the same exact place where Abraham and Isaac ended up and God spared Isaac. I think the angel stopped because he remembered the covenant. I think the angel stopped. I think God's intention and desire was that he remembered the covenant even though David didn't. He remembered what happened many, many years ago, and he is faithful. He is faithful. Why? Because his goal is the commission. If there is a, if there is a call, the call demands a response, the cost demands a resurrection, and the commission demands a representation. This is why. This is a very important point. When you're sent out into the commission, the great commission, which we all are, we are responsible for representation of God. We are responsible to reproduce the gospel through your life. 
And you have to remember the good news is that you're not on a mission. You're on a co-mission and that he would never leave you alone. He would never forsake you and he did not ever mean for you to do it by yourself. You're on a co-mission. Even to say that word, if you tell yourself each day that I'm not on a mission for God, but I'm on a co-mission for God, then you realize by that very statement, you're saying, I am not alone. I am not alone. I have been called. I am willing to pay the cost and I want to go into the commission. I want to go into the commission because they need me. They have to have me. I was willing to pay a price even though it cost me nothing. I was willing to go on out and put on my wedding clothes in order to honor the king who paid for me. You see, this is an attitude and an understanding of what it is to walk in his presence and in his kingdom. Amen. Amen. We'll wrap it up there. But I just wanted to share with you some of the times of how I see my experience with God walking through a call that must be cultivated. If you are called and you are, you're spe- you have a specific understanding and calling on your life. You got to understand that each way your vision has to die so that his can live because he is cultivating a call in you. And why? Because he called you to live out the name that he's given you. He has called you to live out the new name and the new nature. Amen. Stand to your feet, saints.